Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. If you want to stop asking what's in it for me and start to live like a godly man, then you need to start to see yourself differently. You and I need to see ourselves as part of, and if you want a Bible word that will help communicate this concept, used 36 times in the New Testament for us as a corporate entity, then we need to start seeing ourselves as a body. Americans are known for their individualism, but there are drawbacks to this cultural value as well. In the Christian life, individualism creates a sort of privatized faith, one that lacks the community and camaraderie the New Testament church displayed. Well, today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is beginning a series in 2 Samuel, reminding us that individualism isn't the goal when it comes to the body of Christ. To download the free study notes, go to focalpointradio.org. Well, let's dive in. Got a book on my shelf. It's always good for a smile or two, and my life is getting too complicated. It's called Children's Letters from God. Have you seen this? Just sincere, heartfelt letters that these six, seven-year-olds write to God. Here's one of them. Sammy says, Dear God, I want to be just like my daddy when I get big, but not with so much hair all over thought that was cute. Dear God, thank you for my baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy. (laughs) That was what Joyce said. Neil's real concerned. He said, I went to a wedding this week, and they kissed right there in church. Is that okay? (laughs) Here's one that was uh, interesting. Dear God, uh, maybe Cain and Abel wouldn't kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. Then he finishes with, it works for me and my brother, signed Larry. <laughs> I was reading through this book, and I got to that one. And you know how sometimes you're trying to read it for one purpose, just a light moment in the middle of the day because you need to uncomplicate your life. But little Larry says, you know, maybe what Cain and Abel really needed was their own rooms. He says, you know, it works for us. This doesn't take very many years in the real world to recognize that the irritants that take place between people seems to be relieved. And the solution seems to be pretty smart to say, you know, mm, little space, maybe a wall between us, little independence, my own stuff, my own bed, my own dresser. You know, maybe we'd get along a lot better if we just put some distance between you and me. Little kids figure it out. And people have been living it out for generations. And it's not getting better, it's getting worse. Worse in the sense that that is not God's design for people to have their own rooms, so to speak. It's not God's solution to interpersonal relationship problems to say, let's just separate and get some distance between you and me. It's the world's solution. And the world has, in a sense, created a cultural norm and a cultural value that has, for the most part, particularly in the Western church, painted us as individuals into a corner. We have our individual relationship with God, our personal relationship with God, our our personal quiet times, our own pursuit of Christ. We have our own temptations and our own problems, and we see ourselves pretty much as individuals. That is what the church has become. That is certainly what our culture is. 
We have moved from corporate concerns and the common good to how does it affect me? What are the issues that impact my life? The old magazines in the olden days were called Life and, and People and U.S. News and World Report. If you've noticed, the latest magazines that hit the press are titled Self and Us. I'm waiting for the Me, Me, Me magazine to come out, you know, because it's all just moving toward me. What about me, my stuff? The obsession with personal rights is just one symptom of the independent individual attitude that permeates the United States and has infiltrated the church. And we are today, I suggest, as far from Acts chapter 2 as any church in any generation in any culture has ever been. We don't know what it is to live as a community. We don't know what it is to be passionate about the common good. I, at least from my perspective, don't sense that we've really got that one wired. And I'm almost ashamed to bring this message to you this morning because I think, in a sense, God must sit back in heaven and just laugh because we're so far from it. So I know we're just going to scratch the surface this morning, but this morning, if we can start with perspective and how I view myself Perhaps I can move from personal pronouns like I and me and my to personal pronouns like we and us. And we can start thinking for a little while about my identity being a little bit bigger than I've defined it in the past. And if we can accomplish that in the next half hour, I think God will have had his way in our church in moving us just a little bit closer to what he initially intended for the body of Christ. If you have a Bible, let me illustrate the contrast for you from 2 Samuel chapter 1. If you've been with us, you notice that the first numeral in that little phrase has changed from a 1 to 2. We've gone from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel, but there's not a lot of fanfare, and there's no introductory page that's there in your worship packet because 2 Samuel is really just a continuation of 1 Samuel. You'll feel like you're in the same neighborhood because you are. First and Second Samuel was only split like some, old, like some of the other Old Testament books simply because I guess it was too heavy for the scribes to carry around or something. They split it into two books. So we have First and Second Samuel, but there is absolutely no break. It is a continuation of the story that we have been studying. So we'll pick it up knowing the context as we read these words in verse number one, after the death of Saul. You remember he died as we studied it just recently on Mount Gilboa in a battle against the Philistines. While at the same time, and we learned this earlier, but it's happening at the same time, David returned from defeating the Amalekites. Remember, he had to go and recapture his family and his soldiers' children and wives because they had been taken by the traveling Amalekites who had come in and taken Ziklag, and David went after them, and God was generous after his repentance to grant him victory. And we saw him return to Ziklag and begin to send gifts generously to his friends, it says, just sharing what God had provided with him. And he did that for a couple of days. And the Bible says that on the third day, verse number two, 
a man arrived in, uh, from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And this makes sense because you might remember that David took three days to get back from the battle line after he was exempted from fighting against his own people. It's a three-day journey from the battle line between the Philistines and the Israelites in the north to his town in southern Philistia. So in a three-day journey, a man comes back bearing obviously bad news because the Bible says his clothes were torn and he had dust on his head, the visible ancient Near Eastern signs of mourning. Bottom of verse 2, when he came to David, he fell to the ground. He knew who he was coming to, the person he knew that the prophet Samuel had anointed to become the next king, and he pays him honor as a person would do to an ancient king. And so he does. Where have you come from? Verse 3, David asks him. He answered, I've come and escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me now, if you were with us in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, you already know what happened. Who was the narrator? Who was the one explaining the story to us in chapter 31? It was none other than God himself. We often look past that because it's just the narration of Scripture, but it is the inspired word of God. And the record of Saul's death has been recorded, and there's no questioning what happened. Saul died in a battle, just to recount it for you. When he got hit with a with an arrow, obviously between the chinks in his armor. He was mortally wounded as he laid there, knowing that he was going to die. He turned to his armor bearer and said, would you kill me because if these Philistines capture me, that's not going to be a good scene for me, so put me out of my misery and kill me. What did the armor bearer say? No way, I can't do that. text says he was frightened and he wouldn't kill Saul. So the Bible says Saul took his sword and he fell on it and he killed himself. And the Bible says that when the armor bearer, an experienced military man, saw that Saul was dead, and I think he's well qualified to tell us when someone is dead or not dead, when he sees that Saul is actually really dead, he takes his sword and falls on his sword. So that's what happened to Saul. But the Amalekite who comes and tells David what happens after a three-day walk from the battle line, he's kind of changed the story around a little bit. Look at it with me, bottom of verse 4. He said, well, the men fled from the battle, and many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. David said to the young man who brought him the report, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? Well, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned around, he saw me, he called out to me. I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? I said, I'm an Amalekite. And he said to me, stand over me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood over him and I killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and I brought them here to you, my Lord. So what do we know? We know for sure that he's got a crown in his hand and he's got an armband in his hand and he's presenting them to David. Verifiable proof that he was there and actually saw Saul on Mount Gilboa. Problem is, we know what really happened, and we know the Amalekite didn't kill him. We know Saul killed himself. The armor bearer verified it, and the armor bearer killed himself. So how could this Amalekite alien have come upon the scene and taken the crown and the armband? It's very simple. If you were to go back in your mind to what happened, and perhaps you'll have to study it in the text yourself, in chapter 31, the Bible says that the Philistine army came, swept past Mount Gilboa, and kept pushing east to the Jordan River and pushed the troops all the way back past the Jordan. 
And then it says the next day after the battle, they came back and started to strip the dead Israelites and came upon Saul. So there was a day and a half after the Philistine army marched past Mount Gilboa that Saul was laying there dead before they came back, found him, cut his head off, and did the rest of the gory story that you remember from chapter 31. So there was a day and a half that this little scavenger Amalekite happened to be out there and find the dead man, and he says, oh my goodness, this is the king. He finds his crown, he finds his armband, and he says, wow, this could be a good opportunity for me. I could go and tell David. I know that Saul hates David. I know that David, you know, hasn't been able to even live in Israel because Saul hates him and has been out to kill him. If I were to tell David that Saul is dead, I'm sure he'd be happy with that news. And if in some way I could write myself into the script and make myself part of it and tell him perhaps, hey, I finished him off for you. David, perhaps I'd get a big reward. Now, if you question that interpretation of the facts, you might want to put something in the margin of your Bible that would direct you to chapter 4, verse 10 of 2 Samuel. Because David, in looking back on this event, says, yeah, you know, there was a guy who came to me reporting the news of Saul's death, thinking that it would be good news. And the inference in the rest of the passage is he expected some kind of reward. So here was an Amalekite who happened upon dead King Saul before the Philistines came back and cut his head off. He finds his crown and his armband. He marches for three days back to David and ends up saying, hey, Dave, you know, uh, you're really going to be happy about this. Uh, Saul, he's dead. So I know what that means for you. It means promotion. And it means no more running, no more being a fugitive. I know you're going to be happy with this. And as a matter of fact, if you're on you know, an object of your happiness, you could look at me because you know what I did? I was the guy who actually finished them off. Here's the crown. Here's the armband. I mean, you know, if you want to throw a party or something, I'll understand. (laughs) Need my name? That's great. I mean, he expected David to be happy. Why did he expect David to be happy? Because his assumption was that though this was bad news, that Israel had lost a battle and their king was dead, for David as an individual, it was good news. For the nation, bad news. For the individual, good news. That was his assumption. And I tell you what, he looked upon this situation and said this may be a bad thing for the nation, but you know what? This could be good news for me. I might get rewarded. He looked out for himself. He put his own interests first, and that was important. It's the American way. How can I make an opportunity out of this bad situation? Individual concern. He said, can I get out of this? Because he knew what David was getting out of this, and he thought for sure it would be appropriate to put the focus there. Are you tracking with me? You want to be a godly person. If you want to be someone that reflects the heart of God, the first thing we need to stop doing, number one on your outline, if you're taking notes, these are three statements that be worth getting down. The first thing you and I need to stop doing, we need to stop asking, what's in it for me? That's the question that though it's never articulated in the text, it permeates the first 10 verses of this passage. He assumed what was in it for David as an individual. He assumed that in his life he could make something out of this. And he said, dead king, there's a crown, there's an armband, I'm first on the scene. What's in it for me? Maybe a reward. He said for David, what's in it for David? Relief, promotion. He can do what he wants to do. He can move back to Judah now. This would be a good thing. He said, what's in it for 
me? You and I need to stop asking that question. Why? Because that is the number one thing Satan loves us to ask. Did you know that? What's the first encounter in Scripture we have with the enemy, the arch enemy of God? Genesis chapter 3. What happens in Genesis chapter 3? He shows up in the form of this talking snake in the garden. That's weird enough as it is, but a whole different world that we have very little clue what it was like in the garden. But here comes Satan saying to Eve what? Oh, I know God has made some prohibitions and has got some rules in this. But really, Eve, start to think about it. If you eat of this tree, what's in it for you? He convinced her so much that she says, hey, it's pleasing to the eye. It looks good. It's going to taste good. It's going to be good for me. And the whole entire chain reaction of sin, death, and destruction in our universe started by Satan successfully getting one girl to say, what's in it for me? Turn your Bibles, if you would, keep your finger in this passage for Samuel 1 and turn to 1 John chapter 2. Let me show you something. should wake us up to the fact that we have to fight the whole cultural norm, and we've got to swim upstream if we're ever going to try and beat this thing in our lives. Because it is a temptation that not only are you wired to sin, and not only is our enemy trying to get us to sin, but our whole world is designed to move in this opposite direction. God wants us to think corporately. God wants us to think about common good. Everything that we deal with, trying to get us to think about personal good, personal concerns, personal rights, personal advantage. 1 John chapter 2. If you don't know where that is, go to the end of the book, book of Revelation. Turn back a few books. You'll find a little book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. Take a look at verse 15, if you would. 1 John 2, 15. Do not love the, here's a broad word, the cosmos, the world. What's with that? I can't love the trees and the ocean and the sunset. I don't get it. No, it has nothing to do with the physical stuff of earth. It has to do with the system, the culture, the values, the norms or anything in the world, or any of its norms and values and desires. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Why are these things so antithetical? Verse 16. For everything in the world, here's the definition of the things that are cram-packed into the society in which we live. The cravings of sinful man, literally the lusts of my humanness, my flesh, the lusts of my eyes, what I want to look at, and the boasting and celebrating of what I have and what I do what he has and what he does. It comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. He's trying to give us perspective, but the point I'm trying to make is that the world in which we live in is filled with desires, and those desires are constantly being impressed upon us, getting you to ask what's in it for you. Should we do this? Should we invest in this? Should we choose this path? Should we change jobs? Should we move to this neighborhood? Should we get involved in that church? It all comes down to, for most of us, what will it do? for me? That's not the question to be asking. That's really not the issue. And if you've read ahead in our passage, you know, of course, as you turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 1, that David's not real excited about the news. Look at it in verse number 11, 2 Samuel 1, 11. Though the world is asking and the Amalekites trying to get David to look at it from a personal perspective, David won't look at it from a personal perspective. Verse 11, 
David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and they wept and they fasted. There was no feasting. There was no celebrating. They didn't turn to one another and high-five each other and say, great, finally we can get back to our own country now. Finally, the, that jerk is dead. I can't believe it. The guy's been trying to come in. Man, isn't that good? Whoo, he's gone. Hey, what's your name, son? Let's put you on a plaque and give you a trophy or something. You finished him off. That's great news. Nothing like that took place because David didn't look at it as what's in it for me. He didn't see it as an individual. He saw it as part of a corporate whole. Look at the things that he mourns. Notice the concentric circles. I fast, he fasted until evening for Saul. He was mourning for his son Jonathan. He was mourning and fasting for the army of the Lord and for the house of Israel. He mourned for the king. Now, wasn't that the guy you couldn't get along with that hated your guts? You're mourning for him? I don't get it. What else did he mourn for? His son, Jonathan. Oh, we understand that because you were pals and buddies with Jonathan. That's cool. But, you know, what's this whole thing about the army of the Lord? Weren't these the guys that were loyal to Saul and they should have been loyal to you? Those traitors? You're mourning the death of these people? And then look at the last concentric circle. He's mourning who? The entire house of Israel. You don't know those people. How many people in the house of Israel do you really know? Right? And you're mourning for the whole country? I don't get it. Why? Because this was not just a political entity. Israel was supposed to be a spiritual entity. And that was his family. That was his identity. That was what he was. He was part of Israel. He wasn't mourning the death of a jerk that hated him. He was mourning the loss of the king of his country. He was mourning the loss of the leader of his family. He was mourning the prince of his family, Jonathan. He was mourning the army of his family. And he was mourning for his whole entire family. David had a different perspective on himself. If you want to stop asking what's in it for me and start to live like a godly man, then you need to start to see yourself differently. Number two on your outline, you and I need to see ourselves as part of, and if you want a Bible word that will help communicate this concept, used 36 times in the New Testament for us as a corporate entity, then we need to start seeing ourselves as a body. We are a body, not an organization. We are an organism. We are a living, profoundly interconnected group of people under the umbrella of the Lordship of Christ who have one purpose, one Lord, got into it through the same door, focused on the same goals, committed to the same book, filled with the same spirit, and that is our defining identity. And David saw himself not as an individual who could advance his career by this defeat of, his ar- of the armies of Israel. He saw this defeat as something that profoundly hurt him and affected him because he was part of that organization. No, part of that organism. He saw himself as part of the body of Israel, the people of God. We're learning to have a bigger perspective today from Pastor Mike Fabares. You're listening to Focal Point in a sermon titled, The Common Good, A Bigger Perspective on My Life. Now you can download the study notes and listen to the full-length message on demand when you visit focalpointradio.org. We'll continue this message in 2 Samuel chapter 1 next week. And if you missed any part of Pastor Mike's study, you can catch up online anytime when you visit focalpointradio.org. You can also download the message on your favorite podcasting app or stream it using the Focal Point app. 
Well, this month we're featuring a fascinating resource all about learning to love God's Word. It's a book called How to Eat Your Bible, written by Pastor Nate Pickowitz. If you're feeling distant from God, could it be that you're ignoring His Word? But maybe you don't know where to start. How to Eat Your Bible will help you cultivate an appetite for lifelong study of Scripture. We'll send you a copy of this relevant book with our gratitude when you give a gift of any amount to support Focal Point. Thank you for investing in this work, so others may know the truth of the Gospel message. Request How to Eat Your Bible when you go to focalpointradio.org. You can also donate and request the book by calling 888 5885. If you'd rather send your gift by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. Or maybe you're ready to take your support to the next level by becoming a Focal Point Partner. Monthly support from our faithful friends provides us with a reliable source of income so we can continue to bring you and so many others this daily program. Join the team today at focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm your host, Dave Drewy. Be sure to come back tomorrow for our weekly feature called Ask Pastor Mike as we discuss prayer in the pastor's study. Pastor Mike will address the question, does God hear all prayers? Hear the helpful discourse when you join us Friday for Focal Point. Hi, Pastor Mike here. God's word promises it'll never return void. So I wonder how is God's word moving in your heart right now? Drop us a line. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to be praying for you here. Just go to focalpointradio.org and then be sure to join us again tomorrow right here as we continue to explore the depths of Scripture. We'll see you then. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.